Illusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Listen to amazing and bizarre science infuse into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll feature Pokemon Thrips, Modern Day Mummies, and Night at the Disease Museum. But first up, here's the news with Therese Chen. If you thought pocket lasers were pretty cool, now you can kill germs with plasma jets. A team of Chinese and Australian scientists have published a paper in the Journal of Physics D, Applied Physics, titled Inactivation of a 25.5 micrometer Enterococcus facilis biofilm by a room temperature battery-operated handheld air plasma jet. A plasma is an electrically charged gas which is normally found in the sun and other stars, or in plasma balls. The researchers have built a plasma jet that uses air from the room instead of a superheated gas to kill bacteria at skin-safe temperatures. They use 20,000 electrical pulses per second to create the plasma. They tested it on bacterium that often infects the root canals in dental treatments and is highly antibiotic and heat-resistant. They created the biofilm by incubating the bacteria for seven days, growing biofilms that consisted of 17 different layers of bacteria. After treating each biofilm with a plasma jet flashlight for five minutes, the plasma was found to penetrate deep into the very bottom layer and inactivate the bacteria. While plasma has previously been shown to effectively kill bacteria and viruses on the surface of the skin and water, they have no idea how it works. It had been thought that ultraviolet light was generated by the plasma and that this killed the germs. But this battery-operated plasma jet generates very little UV light as a safety feature. And yet the bacteria still died. The international team behind the plasma flashlight consists of scientists from Huazong University of Science and Technology, Syro Materials Science and Engineering, and the University of Sydney and the City University of Hong Kong. The plasma jet should sell for around $100. Don't ask for a plasma torch, because that would cook you with the bugs. Progress towards the treatment of cerebral palsy has been made, with scientists using the budding field of nanomedicine to improve motor function in rabbits. The study was published in April 18 issue of Science Translational Medicine. Cerebral palsy is a term used to describe a number of conditions which result in impaired motor function, including the ability to walk. It is believed that over 34,000 Australians have this condition. At present, there is no cure, and therapy has primarily focused upon reducing the severity of the symptoms. A common cause of cerebral palsy is damage to the brain by infection and or inflammation. Attempts to treat new infections have previously been difficult due to the numerous mechanisms in place which protect the brain from blood-borne infections. The scientists also needed to develop a method of crossing the so-called blood-brain barrier 
To do this, researchers at the Peritonology Research Branch of the National Institute of Health use nanoparticles known as dendromeres. Dendromeres are synthetic biomimics of the amino acid alanine. They are approximately 2,000 times smaller than a red blood cell, which itself is approximately 6 to 8 micrometers in diameter and possess a globular tree-like structure. The dendromeres were used to deliver an anti-inflammatory drug known as N-acetyl-L-cysteine directly to the brain cells of interest. In this instance, this would be the microglia and astrocytes that are destroying both healthy and damaged brain cells. After the treatment, Rambert showed a significant improvement in the motor control and coordination in comparison to those that were treated with the anti-inflammatory drug alone. Brain tissue analysis also showed a reduction in the cells responsible for the brain damage. In crossing the blood-brain barrier and targeting the cells responsible for inflammation and brain injury, we believe we may open the door to new therapies for a wide variety of neurologic disorders that stem from inflammatory responses gone haywire, says lead investigator Sihara Kanan. Indeed, the work opens the possibility of treatment for other neuroinflammatory-related diseases, including meningitis and multiple sclerosis, among others. The researchers intend to follow up the primary findings by determining whether or not the improvements remain in adulthood. Electrical stimulation can help migraines. In Headache, the Journal of Head and Face Pain, the US team report that a mild transcranial electrical current stimulating the brain with electrodes applied to the scalp can prevent migraines from occurring and reduce the severity and duration of those that do occur. It's currently used to treat some psychological disorders in motor rehabilitation in stroke patients and appears to be safe, portable and easy to use. It may also improve your mathematical skills and your ability to focus for up to six months. The team's computer models suggest that the current is travelling along the parts of the brain that perceive and regulate pain. The improvements accumulate over four weeks of treatment with the effects lasting for months. The only side effect reported by the test subjects was a mild tingling sensation experience when receiving the treatment. You can walk around with it and keep it in your desk or in your pocket. This is the first technology that operates on just a 9-volt battery for direct current and can be applied in your home. The paper was titled TDCS-Induced Analgesia and Electrical Fields in Pain-Related Neural Networks in Chronic Migraine. As a um, migraine sufferer, I find this research particularly exciting, although I'm not too sure how I feel exactly about giving myself an electric shock. But then again, given that it's reported to also improve your mathematical ability and your focus and gives you a slight tingling sensation, I might be up for it.
If you've listened to Diffusion before, you may have already had the pleasure of listening to the wonderful Dr. James Gilbert from the University of Sydney, waxing lyrical about assassin bugs and cricket testicles. He once again joined Julian Popple for a chat, this time about the amazing Pokemon Thrips. James, can you tell me what are Thrips? Okay. All right, so Thrips are about about the smallest insects you can possibly imagine. Well, they're, um, yeah, about, they're probably the size of the smallest fruit flies that come around and, and they kind of they're shaped a bit like a cigar a very very tiny cigar uh, I mean I suppose it's all relative really I tried to take them to a, a lab to look at them under a microscope the other day and the people in the microscopy lab were like that's not small I can see it you'd think they were really small they're the kind of people call them thunderbugs as well like a common name for them is thunderbugs because they tend to appear whenever there's a, a thunderstorm and and they get all over you they're like little kind of like uh, like the hyphens on a page crawling all over you when there's a thunderstorm and they tend to congregate in things like in little corners and cracks and stuff like that they live in flowers um, they're they're herbivores and they they they're so small that they use their mouths to to punch holes in cells of plants and go down the line like sucking the contents out of the cells like a bit like a corn on the cob um, and, uh, and so, so they've got this specialised piercing stylet that they use, or pair of stylets that they use to, to punch a hole in the cell wall and suck the contents out. Um, and they like worldwide, they cause quite a lot of problems in um, things like fruit crops and stuff because you'll get bunches of thrips feeding on the surface um, of, of like a mango. Fruit like mangoes are devastated by thrips, and the the horrible heinous damage they do to a mango is they make it a bit brown on the outside. Uh, which I think is is terrible, really, because I wish they'd just send me all the mangoes that have been damaged by thrips, because they're perfectly good enough to eat. It's just people don't want to buy them. Uh, a bit brown. It's a yes. fairly <laughs> minor crime. And I always thought, when you look at them under the microscope, they've got these very fine wings with little hairs. I always thought they looked like little fairies. Yeah, that's that's one of the coolest things about thrips, and uh, it's how they get their Latin name. Actually, the Latin name is Thysanoptera, and that means fringe wings, and the reason that that is if you if you look under a microscope you'll find that instead of wings they have like what looks like oars and the oars are uh, have a fringe of hairs and uh, the way the way that works uh, they can still fly and the, the way they can fly with this this seemingly silly arrangement is that uh, at their level of tininess the air is actually viscous like water so in fact rather than flying through the air they're actually kind of rowing through the air i didn't know that that's amazing (laughs) moving on i would like to ask you specifically about the type of thrips you're working on which you've rather contagiously dubbed pokemon thrips can you tell me a bit about them well, I, I think that's, that's something that I would, I would apply to most of the insect world, really, because insects, are, in evolutionary terms, they're like little Swiss army knives. So they're kind of constantly evolving new features and new weapons and new kind of this, that and the other. And I see them as little kind of Pokemon machines that, that they're always evolving to be able to fight each other and, and uh, attract each other. And they use various little methods to do that. Uh, the reason that uh, my ones are so cool is that out of thousands and thousands of species of thrips worldwide, the ones in Australia are especially interesting because they tend to team up into teams and and uh, form form social colonies. And the reason they do that is because in Australia we have a very kind of hostile environment where it's very hot, it's very desiccating, and that means that all over, in not just in insects, not just in thrips, 
all over the whole continent things that things that are especially things that are small like to have a very small enclosed environment where it's humid enough that they won't desiccate they won't dry up so it's very very important for you to retain moisture in the Australian environment uh, one way of doing that is to have a nest and nests are quite expensive things to make so if you're going to make a nest that's going to have a nice environment for you it's often a good idea to team up with fellow fellow members of your species um, so some thrips that do that by injecting chemicals in the plant which causes the plant to develop something a bit like a cancer that we call a gall and they live on the inside of the gall and that's very clever because they can use their chemicals they keep they keep kind of feeding the plant chemicals which makes the plant respond by growing nutritious bits that they can eat on the inside of the gall which is incredibly clever and other ones like the ones I study instead of doing that they find leaves and tie them together with silk and so the ones I study live on the inside of a gallery that they've made by tying the leaves together and binding it together with silk and then they have babies inside that and they live in they live their whole lives inside this this very very small space that's enclosed by leaves that have been tied together okay so you mentioned that they live in a sort of society is it is it a bit like termites or ants there's a kind of a hierarchy any sort of uh, social organization within that that's a really really good question it's really interesting um and that's what i'm studying in fact uh, what i'm hoping to find out and what we do know is that in the species that i study a certain proportion of nests are cooperatively by several females that's, that's about as much as we know about it. We know that they're probably sisters as well. Some people have done a, a little bit of genetics on it and found that the females that, that cooperate to make nests tend to be sisters. We don't know anything about their behaviour really because nobody, very few people take the time to look at that small level and, and go into the field and, and, and look at such tiny things. And furthermore, it's quite hard to to look within the nest because you can't really see inside the silk. I'm beginning to have a look at how they're actually behaving and I've discovered some tantalizing clues as to what they're doing one of the things that I've discovered is that they make rubbish dumps inside the nest um, so they've got there's a special area inside the nest where they've collected lots of kind of you know bits of you know trash eggshells and dead thrips and dead babies and that kind of thing and instead of leaving them lying around which was probably which would probably be kind of unhygienic and it would probably encourage uh, molds to develop or, or fungus that's really interesting because I'm, I'm aware there's species of ants that do the same thing they have ant graveyards within their nests absolutely absolutely and and that's that's exactly the analogy that i want to draw so instead of yeah instead of lay, leaving dead bodies lying around they will kind of clear them out but the reason that's tantalizing in, with respect to their organization is because that means that it takes effort to maintain a nest as well as to build it so if it takes an effort to maintain it that suggests that somebody's doing that work and it suggests a kind of division of labor it creates the potential for one individual to kind of monopolize all of the reproduction and lay all the eggs like a queen and it creates the potential for other ones to do less of the egg laying and more of the work so i'm really excited by that and i'm going to i'm going to see if i can you know watch them doing watch them kind of dragging 
dead bits around and see if I can see if one or one or other of them is consistently doing that work. Again, it's going to be quite hard to look at such a small scale. The other thing I want to look at is is if they're systematically different in size. If there are cooperating females in a nest, that like where one of them is always the biggest, and and if they're evenly sized or if they're kind of um, uh, one of them is always bigger than the others, um, which will kind of give an in indication whether one of them is doing most of the egg laying. That was Dr James Gilbert, a postdoctoral researcher from the University of Sydney, talking to Julianne Popple about Pokemon thrips. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SCR 107.3, and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com and also www.2scr.com, and look out for the 2scr iPhone app. Late at night, in an unfamiliar scientific territory, Julianne Popple went along to the Museum of Human Disease at the University of New South Wales for a special event called Pickled. She met the museum's technical officer, David Cutting, who spoke to her about his job making modern-day mummies. Can you describe your work um, my, I have a, a wide variety of, of work I do here at the uni, employed primarily here at the museum where I look after these specimens. Um, I'm also responsible for the embalming of whole cadavers here at the uni for the medicine undergraduate program, which after embalming will be um, prosected and then go on for finer dissection by um, a, you know, maybe third to fourth year med students. And there's also a team of uh, dissectors, um, and I'm one of them that work in anatomy and we provide to the teaching program dissected specimens. You know, that don't display pathologies like here at the museum, just anatomical dissections. And how did you get into that line of work of actually embalming? I actually left a journalism course to take up mortuary sciences at TAFE for two years, a course which doesn't run anymore, um, sadly enough. And I was employed here on a three-month position as a dissector. But then I went to do some histological work. And from there, when our clinical anatomy program started up, I was taught to embalm. And now I've done about 70 cadavers. And what does it take to embalm a full cadaver? About two to three days, maybe 20 to 30 litres of um, preservative fluid. A peristaltic pump, um, which we use, uh, which we bought for about $10,000. And mostly just a, a fair deal of patience. Fair enough. What about an individual organ? Can you describe the process you'd go about dissecting and preserving that for a display in a museum? Sure. I think um, depending on what the organ is... What you might want to do is hook a whole organ up. If it has a large blood supply, you can hook a whole organ up to maybe a uh, syringe or, or a pump system so you perfuse the tissue via its own arterial system because you always get the best fixation doing it that way. Otherwise, you can just put a whole um, tissue into a bath of preservative solution, probably formal, and it's, it's effective for a length of time, um, you know, depending on how you want to judge it and depending on the, the tissue you're working with. And has uh, doing this work uh, given you a new appreciation or have you learnt more about the human body? I learn stuff about the human body every day, which is good because I get to go to work and not only do stuff which I feel fantastically privileged to be doing, but I do learn every day. And um, it's a magnificent gift that we have here, the people that donate their body. Um, I think it's just a magnificent thing that they do, a a special thing. It's obviously a finite resource for us. 
and there's a ton of opportunities that I've I've managed to uh, seize through this job. I go away on conferences every year and talk to people um, in similar roles around the country about you know little tricks that we've picked up and and the stuff we do. I mean, even nights like this evening, you know, I haven't done this before, but it's, uh, this has been fun. Like making modern day mummies. It's actually very similar. I, I read a, an article recently that was just talking about how the, you know, the mummies in ancient Egypt were um, were done and how they actually sort of came about by it's the it's the climate over there they learnt to do it by finding people who had died in the desert and they wouldn't be found for many years and then they come back and find them sort of preserved really well and obviously they improved on that there were techniques that they implemented after that but um, the climate over there in that part of the world is just sensational for dry embalming okay and what would it take for someone if they say they wanted to donate their body or they wanted to donate part of their body to a place like this yeah. what would they have to do it's quite simple, actually. Both all, all the major universities, um, ourselves, Sydney Uni, Western Sydney Uni, it's all linked from their medicine website. We also run an ad, or we have done up until recently, in the Sunday paper once a month. Um, you know, would you like to donate your body, UNSW? And uh, so there, there are links on uh, the websites, or you can simply contact the medical sciences department at any of your, your, your local university, and they'll be able to put you through to the person you need to talk to. That was David Cutting from the Museum of Human Disease at the University of New South Wales talking to Julianne Popple about preserving organs and cadavers, all in the name of science and public education. For more information on the museum or donating your body for science, visit our blog, www.2ser.com show diffusion. But don't try this at home. While outside her comfort zone at the event Pickled at the Museum of Human Disease at the University of New South Wales, Julianne Popple went in amongst the rows of amazing specimens to chat to event participant Hannah and the museum's science communicator, Dr Bridget Murphy. Strolling amongst jar upon jar of specimens of human tissue, I suddenly remembered that there was a reason I didn't study human anatomy at university. Because frankly, the idea of human tissue in jars creeped me out just a bit. You see, whilst I've always been happy to dissect fish and frogs and rats and, of course, insects, human tissue is just that little bit close to home. So initially, I felt just that little bit uncomfortable. But that discomfort quickly turned to fascination as I realised that behind each specimen, there was a story. And even better, some very passionate scientists, such as Dr Bridget Murphy, who are keen to tell those stories. I think the ones which surprised me the most, especially when I started working here, were the tuberculosis specimens. I wasn't aware that tuberculosis was that common, um, but in fact one in three people around the world carry the bacteria for it, which is an astounding figure. And just to see some of our specimens and see how obvious the infection is in the specimen, it sort of looks a bit like blue vein cheese. Um, you can understand the sorts of symptoms that people get, you know, coughing up blood and really wheezing and hacking. And, yeah, it really brought it home to me how awful a disease it was. And I also noticed you've got some compelling specimens of melanoma too. Yeah, we do. So they're one of the main ones we show the high school students when they come in. So we show them, you know, what a melanoma looks like from the top, that, it, that it's just a mole. But you don't know how far through the skin it's spread until you get a doctor to cut a biopsy, really. So we've got one which is a really big one, which hasn't spread through the skin very far, but there's another one which looks almost identical from the top, but that's spread all the way through the fat layer. 
and that particular specimen is a specimen from someone's cheek and doctor who cut that specimen out couldn't cut any further because the melanoma had spread all the way from the skin level right through to the inside of the cheek. So at that point it had got too far and it spread elsewhere in the body and the person eventually died from um, metastatic melanoma. So yeah, I think those, those skin cancer ones definitely make you want to go to the clinic and get your skin checked. <laughs> Making a mental note to organise my next mole checkup, I could now see the immense value in this place, particularly for a smoker because I think that once you've seen those specimens of cancerous lungs, you'd probably never want to smoke another cigarette again. But I was still wondering why on earth anyone would want to come on a Saturday night to learn how to dissect and embalm a pig's heart, which was the objective of the event, Pickled. So I cornered event participant Hannah for a chat. I just generally have an interest in human biology and human physiology. I did do a science um, degree and uh, did a bit of physiology and things like that. So yeah, it's just interesting and I haven't had a chance to dissect anything (laughs) since my undergrad days. And also something pretty cool to put on the mantle at home, uh, the heart suspended in the solutions. I don't know, just a kind of quirky, fun thing to do. It's, you know, a bit more exciting or interesting than just sitting and watching TV. Yeah, it's a bit educational. Yeah, just something exciting and different to do with your time and you get to learn a bit along the way. Okay, so what have you learnt today? It's interesting to see what diseases actually look like in the human body because, you know, even when I did my undergrad degree, you didn't necessarily get to dissect diseased bodies or anything like that. So, you know, you hear about all these diseases and things on news and, um, you know, read articles about them, but I suppose you don't really ever get to see what they actually physically do to the body. So, yeah, it's been really interesting to um, just see how diseases present themselves in the tissue and the, the different body parts. That was Julianne Popple reporting on her most extraordinary night at the Museum of Human Disease, featuring Hannah and Dr Bridget Murphy. For more info on Julianne's adventure at the Museum of Human Disease, visit the blog www.2scr.com slash shows slash diffusion. We also recommend visiting the museum's own website www.diseasemuseum.unsw.edu.au And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. You can send email to diffusion at 2scr.com. That's diffusion at 2scr.com and tell us your thoughts, feelings and stories. If you'd like to be on radio and you live in Sydney, we need more volunteers on Diffusion. And if you'd like to be on radio and you don't live in Sydney, consider sending us a recorded story. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program was Therese Chen. Diffusion has been produced by Julianne Popple in the studios of 2SCR in Sydney and is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.